Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Justin Zimmerman, founder of Partner Playbooks. Justin helps new and mid-stage companies get their partner programs in shape. Justin, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me here. My pleasure. I love your material on LinkedIn, and um, I've been following it for a while, and you just make a hell of a lot of sense. Would you mind telling people about your history, maybe 60 to 90 seconds on your background and how you ended up uh, setting up Partner Playbooks? Well, sure. Uh, the short version of it is I began my life uh, as a partner person with the first partnership with uh, my readers and uh, customers as a direct response copywriter. And so you have to know their world better than they know it. So that way you can write and say things that gets them to convert with your converse with your copy and content and convert into customers. And so over the last 20 years, I've just scaled that process to building teams and realizing that when you take copy and content and you multiply it across multiple companies, you actually are creating partnerships that help them solve a whole slew of problems in a single job to be done. And so conversion, copywriting and content for me are the perfect ways to and where how I got to partner playbooks is uh, this gap in the market right now with a lot of companies realizing that they've got dozens of integrations, which are not partnerships, and they've got nobody managing those relationships nor creating any copy and content to align those companies to help better serve the ecosystem of customers that their ICPs overlap in. And so Partner Playbooks was founded as an approach to help companies who have these problems that are in this stage of growth and want that type of multiple product go-to-market strategy other than the average webinar pop and drop onto the next one. And so I've been open sourcing my playbooks uh, on LinkedIn, on partnerplaybooks.com, and people have been signing up to kind of hear what I'm saying and what I'm doing, as well as I bring it, bringing in some guest speakers like Casey Hill from Bonjuro, who we're going to have a little ch uh, chat next week around how he drove 50,000 unique views and hundreds of signups and trials with a partnership between uh, his company, a tech company, and a service company, Design Pickle. And so those are the types of things that we get into and talk about. And uh, I've been on one of these calls. They are fabulous, very, very interactive, and lots of really good input from all the, uh, the attendees. So really well worth uh, going to that. You did say something which really sparked my interest there. Uh, you said something, uh, you said integrations are not partnerships. Do you mind elaborating on that? Because I think that's a blind spot. Yeah. So I wrote a post. Uh, sometimes I just tap into something that is true for a lot of people. And this was something that I probably got 10 or 20,000 views and comments and stuff all over the place on this. And it was just me t reflecting on uh, struggles I've seen as a partner marketer, partner manager, partner director, and that a lot of companies, uh, they hear through the grapevine that a certain cu customer or group of customers wants an integration. They go build it, they deploy it into the marketplace, and it just sits there like an icon on a page. And some people take, take it up, but then what ends up happening is you get a dozen companies in the same niche also publishing integrations, but there is no active management of the relationship between those two companies. It's pretty unilateral self-service and it makes sense. It's something that needs to be done, but a lot of times integrations are more product features that are there just really to enhance the ability of the existing product to do more with others. And that's great, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's an active relationship between both the companies to where they're active 
They're strategically looking at how this integration, the deepening of that integration uh, of the, and then the marketing and the sales cycles and all the other vehicles that go into not just product-led growth, but marketing, sales, success, support, and upsell. And so there's a huge, like the whole spectrum of the rest of the essentially business cycles being left on the table because a lot of companies, A, don't realize that there's this other way to operate or B, they just don't have the resources, time, or ability, which is kind of where I help out is to kind of get some of those initial things set up and aligned or qualified and disqualified across companies. Cause they also make the mistake of hiring partner people thinking they know what they know or don't know. And then people come in and then it just goes all, all sideways. And so I just have realized through my own pain and struggle, I'm only at like level two. And so people think I'm at like this level 10 super partner person. I might be a 10 out of 10 in certain areas of marketing content and strategy when it comes to the broad spectrum of partnerships, you know, I'm just like, you know, uh, I feel like, you know, you know, one, two, maybe three steps ahead of most people, which I guess is good enough. This is where people really misunderstand the channel and partnerships. A channel manager, the role is much, much closer to a general manager function than it is to a sales manager. And a channel chief is far closer to a chief executive or even a portfolio chief executive. Totally uh, agree. And you've got so many different moving parts. Um, the channel manager role, uh, Jay McBain did that wonderful graphic a few years back. Um, and there's over 90 different hats that you could be wearing in any one moment of the day. And 11 of them could have happened by midday. And the challenge, the variety requires much, much deeper thinking. I, I, I'm not in the same boat that you are. You know, people come to me and they think that I'm significantly better than I am. But what I have done is I've stopped and I've thought and asked the question, you know, is there a better way? When you consider that 76% of global trade, every product on the planet, 76% of them go through a partner at some stage, their partner assisted, partner implemented, partner manufactured, whatever it happens to be, the channel is part of your business, whether you know it or not. And you better get savvy. So you, you mentioned something when we were in the green room about is your organizational chart really set up for being a good partner? Talk to us about that. Yeah, that's one of the qualifiers, disqualifiers that I look at now when assessing companies, A, to work with them and B, pairing them up with other companies is a lot of times uh, a company's org chart is actually a reflection of the type of, we'll call it uh, blank led strategy that they're, they're uh, going to market with. And so unless there is a like partner led strategy, which is rare for small, new and mid-sized companies, there's an issue with the org chart being aligned to actually allow partnerships to succeed. And so what ends up happening is you've got a product, in my case, I work with a lot of product-led, marketing-led companies uh, who have price points less than $10,000 in average contract value, which doesn't really lend them to have like full-fledged sales cycle sales teams. And so they rely on integrations, partnerships, marketing, well, marketing and uh, product-led. And so their, their org charts are typically like set up at some level of maturity on that on that course where they have a heavy, heavy dev, a heavy uh, support, and uh, maybe a little bit of success, maybe a smattering of marketing. And, you know, and they're growing from that stage up to maybe a little mid-level where they have, you know, 20, 30 people in each one of the major departments. But then the problem is they, they want to bring in partnerships and they don't know where to stick them. 
And so they just kind of throw them into the mix and they don't know where the partnerships is on the marketing, does it live under product, does it live under sales, if there is sales or success. And uh, the problem is that a partnership person like we were just talking about is that general manager. They need resources. They need access to the company's ability to execute on the different types of strategies that a partnership person is going to go out there and make. And so reflectively, like I would say, you know, like attracts like, you know, in, in regular relationships, if you're a fit athlete who's eating healthy and like your own personal habits or this, this, and this, you're probably going to go out when you date somebody and find somebody with similar characteristics. And so if you're, you know, out of shape and, you know, you, you stay up late and you drink a lot of, you know, beer and, uh, you know, alcohol, you're probably going to go out and be at a bar and find someone who has something similar. And so your org chart is, is kind of like the same thing, whereas like, you know, your partner person is the person out there trying to find a, uh, a relationship and that they're only going to really be able to mirror and execute the org chart. And so what I find really ultimately is that if there's not a marketing department set up and aligned to help execute on the go-to-market strategies, then you can't do the marketing with the other companies. If the other company doesn't have the marketing, then they can't really be a great participant with you. If they're not willing to also, you know, entertain points along the buyer's journey at the sales in the in the upsell cycle, or their MarTech isn't capturing all the right data, you can't do that. And so there's like this mere reflectivity of if your org chart isn't designed for some aspect of partnerships. You can't execute on it and you can't also attract and work with people on the other side. And so you have to find that right starting point for you where your org chart is and then find other companies that are in a similar position with a similar org chart. So that way you can start going to market together. I think there are two really fundamental questions which are almost never asked by vendors, which is what's in it for our partners? Because they didn't wake up, set their business up in order that they could peddle your product. They, they did it for their own reasons and they come to work they run their business for their own reasons and they do so much more willingly than for yours and the second thing is what are we doing to make sure that they want to sell on our behalf are we making it easy for them do we have systems and structures in place that make uh, remove the friction do we see them as competitors uh, do we treat them like a get out of uh, sales free card are they like the bastard ginger-haired ugly stepdaughter of direct sales, because that's how they're treated in many organizations. And the people who end up in channel are very often failed direct salespeople who are still operating the same bad behaviors that made them bad at direct sales. That's a good um, point. Often you put them there because you don't want to fire them because you got this ludicrous idea that you're a family, which none of all the companies that claim that they're a family seem to be firing people in their thousands uh, within the SaaS world, at least. And it's just bizarre, the hypocrisy of it all, when they're so dependent on the channel and they treat it so badly. The fundamentals are, uh, are wrong. They're not recruiting the right people. They're not investing in it correctly. They play fast and loose with commissions if their valuation needs to be fiddled for this. And you know, they're quite happy to put salespeople under pressure to pressure end customers and break the relationship with the partner. I mean, th this kind of idiocy is just normal and it needs to be called out. It needs to be challenged because it's costing these companies billions. Yeah, I think you brought up a point for me that stood out there, which is really the uh, peddling of other products and the incentive structures behind it. And so in my experience, which is like, you know, very categorical and uh, strong, but limited to, like I said, product-led, marketing-led growth companies that are 
12 integrations plus and, you know, I don't know, $50 million or less in sales. The way I'm seeing traction, happiness, alignment, whatever you want to call it, that avoids that big pitfall of peddling other products slash incentivizing other teams is really kind of the genesis starting point of what we were just talking about with your org chart and then finding where you're strong in a certain area, then going to market to find other partners who have that same ability, capacity to execute together. Because what ends up happening is you're going to find like one traction point, one partner playbook, if you want to call it that, that's going to work for you and the other partner. And a partner playbook is only effective when it works for both people, right? And so what I found is like, and and this is part of one of the key parts of my analysis I do with new partners uh, when I'm trying to uh, align them with other new partners is um, what are the KPIs that both matching parts of the company's two uh, two organizations' departments have aligned with. And so if you could just start with great example for me is the marketing department is in charge of qualified leads for sales and which essentially in product led growth is uh, trials, trial conversions. So anything that you can do to do two things, one, reduce the amount of marketing and content work that that team has to produce in order to then achieve the result of more trials, you're a hero and you're going to get traction because you're tapping into the intrinsic incentives that those teams are aligned to help with. And so that's my secret to helping create those playbooks, whether it's in sales, success, marketing, product, like each one of them has their own intrinsic value that they're trying to get accomplished. And so anything that you can do to help look across the aisle or each uh, company and know how to help each other bring those things together, you know, and then we can get into details on each one of those playbooks across each one of those uh, departments. But essentially, I feel like that's the strategy to create playbooks that that alleviates and overcomes how do you get the incentives and alignment for companies to want to work together and help sell each other's products? Because when done right, you actually help everybody's internal KPIs. In our bookmaking channel sales work, we made the point that your currency are intimacy and trust. And what you don't have is power which means that you have to use soft power and influence in order to get the job done. Now, in order to do that, you have to earn the right to come close. But every direct sales behavior that the SaaS industry has uh, promulgated for the last 12, 15 years runs counter to that because it makes people's amygdala fire off because they feel threatened. They feel kettled. Yeah, into making a decision. They're pushed and rushed. Now, how frequently do you see a partner try to get the vendor to slow down because they understand they're reading the situation, they're reading what the customer is not saying, and then the seller uh, carries on blindly, pushing and pushing and pushing. Thereby, they create stalls or they drive those customers to the competition. I think, again, getting like big picture on what you just said, If I think about the word channel, it is unidirectional. And I think the word channel implies all the problems and things that we dislike about it. And there's a ton of great things about it. And and there's going to be a place for channel. But I also feel like the word channel and partner, and I ask around, I'm always trying to get everybody's opinion on what does channel mean to you? What does channel mean to you? And I do get different answers. But kind of the majority of it is channel is this kind of unidirectional resell. You know, you work for me. Here's the commission agreement. And, and we like that because who doesn't want, you know, uh, uh, an outsourced 
army of uh, independent contractors, essentially, who just on their behalf sell your stuff. Like that, that's, that's the, the dream of sales. And that works for certain products and in certain, in certain industries and certain environments. But uh, again, going back to like the world that I'm a part of right now, which is like the SaaS ecosystem, you know, uh, app to app, app to agency, customer centric model where we're trying to design and going back to one of the things you were saying earlier, which is I think of the, the partner manager, not just as the chief CEO, but really I also think of them as the chief solutions engineer for the customer. And so when we think about that, you're agnostic to incentive programs because your incentive is how do I help the customers get more value out of what they're trying to do with my app and then my partner's app. And then from there, you're just naturally incentivized to solve for customer value, which then turns into actual cust- uh, revenue value. So like that, that, I feel like that's the big shift is like channel sales, the old way, which is still going to exist. Like it's just kind of the language, which then, which then creates the mindset and so we have to be clear what we're talking about and what environment, which is good for what. And then, then we won't have to complain because channel sales in, in those environments works. And so like it is what it is. But then there's this other thing called ecosystem and uh, customer-centric uh, based partnerships that uh, is, I feel like, this new burgeoning thing that I talk about and share in partner playbooks and on LinkedIn, which is, I think, why we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I have a thesis. I was chatting to Todd Capone a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he, I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. He's a sales historian on Twitter. And his stuff's really very interesting because what he's been seeing is for the last six years, the same kind of complaints and problems have been occurring that occurred in the years prior to 1922, the six years prior to 1922. Now, what this indicates is that we're heading towards a place where there will be quite a significant cull of salespeople. In 1922, over 80% of sales jobs were axed. Now, I'm seeing a shift in this direction because certainly within tech, the technology stack has become so complicated that having 20 different vendors just to deal with your firewall or your email is just too uh, cumbersome. And so what they're looking for is that single throat to choke. The partners, I think, because they've had a long time building relationships with their long-term customers, they're intimate. They understand the different moving parts. And I think what's going to happen is about 20 to 30% of sales jobs will disappear and Siri and intelligent websites will replace them. I reckon 20% will stay in the enterprise space at the vendor level and the rest will move into partnerships, into the channel, because that's where the direct sale will happen. I don't think the vendor will still have its place at the table like they used to in the past, because it's just so complicated. And every business now is a technology company. And I'm really curious in terms of your reaction to that and how you see the future moving. The same way Expedia had started disintermediating travel agents from the process of people being able to go on and uh, the API ate the salesperson's job. I think the same way the MarTech landscape, so going back to in the early days of uh, 10 years ago in FusionSoft in 2008 and HubSpot in 2010, uh, marketing automation had started to be able to give the marketer, the MarTech landscape, sort of giving the marketer the ability to do what you would think as 
sales at scale. And so the language, the copy, the conversion, I would say being able to understand uh, your customer and capture that data that I mentioned before, as the maturity of companies have risen in the last 10 years to capture that data and have campaigns and have marketing teams that are able to target messaging uh, to their target market, I feel like the future of partnerships is going to follow a similar suit where this same MarTech that's enabled companies to, with one or two people, you know, build automations and conversion systems that speak to their target audience as they come into the funnel in a very clear, direct way. I feel like that crossover is going to happen in the MarTech landscape for partnerships. And as I was saying before, I wrote a post yesterday and the footer of it was kind of a little swivel around the future of, we'll call it MarTech-enabled company, MarTech-enabled partnerships to be able to target each other's uh, best customers, which goes back to that, I was saying before, that data maturity. And so the future of uh, partnerships is really going to be based on, I predict to be this MarTech that's going to allow not just sales managers and salespeople to help enable the sale, but the MarTech and the uh, content systems to uh, drive leads and sales across companies, which is going to erode the value or positioning of salespeople the same way that the, you know, Expedia and the real estate, the real estate, well, real estate is probably next. Over here, we've got Purple Bricks. It's done exactly the same. Yeah. Making huge market share. Uh, in fact, uh, my own, my coach's nephew spent $340,000 on a house he'd never seen or been to because he had to move across country and he did it all over the internet and never spoke to another human being. Now, yeah. that's a bigger risk than I'm willing to take, I've got to be honest. I bought my last car that way. I was like, dang, I didn't want to travel and go around and try to haggle. And I paid a little bit more money on Carvana, but it was a great experience. Boom. I, in one single flow, I found the car, financed it. Boom. Showed up at my door two weeks later, delivered, squeaky clean, polished, warranted, seven-day trial, return policy. If I didn't like it, I could send it back. And what a great deal. What a great process. And you didn't have to deal with a car salesman. And, and so that's API. You know, there wasn't a sales agent involved. There wasn't someone kind of like, you know, the, and that's a complex purchase, right? You know, buying a car and buying a piece of software. You know, I just think the API and MarTech and marketers who understand copy and content are going to eat the lunch of salespeople. And it's the, these MarTech systems and these really skilled, like I would say, empathetic people who understand the language and the words and the world of their customers and prospects are mm-hmm. going to be able to align. You're going to have marketing and you're going to have technology and product. And, and sales is, is going to be a part of it, but it's going to, it's going to shrink. Well, this is why I think the point around ecosystems is so critical. I'm working with a number of people around building an ecosystem at the moment. There are 70 different vendors. Almost all, bar maybe three, are self-employed. They live or die by the outcomes that they deliver. And what's really interesting is by getting these different perspectives on the same problem, we're able to come up with far more creative solutions very quickly. And in doing so, what we're also able to do is tap into the resources. So, for example, we have some phenomenal copywriters. We have other people who have a world-class top 0.1% in terms of email deliverability and response rates you know, in the 70% mark. Unheard of numbers and do, being able to do so consistently. Now, being able to tap into those resources and have them lead when it's their turn to lead and step back when it's someone else's turn to lead 
I think that is the way that many organizations will survive through the economic recession that's coming and all the other stuff, because the recession is only one part of all the amygdala hijack that's going on, because you've got World War Three, uh, World War Two and a half at least anyway. You've got the rise of populism. You've got the uh, absolute breakdown in trust for institutions like the media, politics, the law, the police, all this kind of stuff. And then you've got inflation, supply chain, money supply and all of that. That's, oh God, the world, yeah. that's the world that people are occupying. And they're operating in corporations a lot of the time. And they're really genuinely worried about their security. So what they need is someone who is empathetic, who understands the job they are trying to get done, what will get them fired and what will get them promoted and sell to that, not turning up trying to peddle product. And, and I think that's why uh, communities like Partnership Leaders has taken off. I think that's why my partner playbooks and the site I really just put out there as a, just let's see what happens next, has started to take off. People, you, you came on board. Because I think people are looking for authentic spaces in niche environments that is uh, trustworthy and authentic where people are genuinely there to learn, help, and share. And, I, and, and so that goes back to like that empathy in, is... the thing that came to mind from your last statement was like, there's really just kind of two currencies. You know, everyone's got their, there's only this currency and that currency for the sake of this conversation right now, there's this, these two currencies. And when we talk about another thing, there'll be another two currencies, but for the purpose of this part of this conversation right now, there are really just two currencies. And I, and it just came up to me as empathy and technology. You know, if you've got high levels of empathy, you can write, you can create, you can bond, you can create trust, you can attract an audience, you can attract a team, you can build and you can do and you can sell. And then technology is the thing that people are buying that scales and is uh, kind of the more durable aspect that, you know, valuations and corporations are built off of. And so it's really the future of empathy and technology combined together. And for me, that's marketing and product. Which, again, really interesting. You talk about uh, the, your communities. What I've also observed with those communities, because I'm involved in several of them and finding them incredibly valuable, is their high challenge and high support. If you're talking yep. shit, they will tell you in no uncertain terms. And it's refreshing because uh, what I want is feedback that is unvarnished and honest. What I don't want is people trying to spare my feelings. I want to learn and develop. And when I have a question and I need help, what I delight in is 12 minutes later, I have 20 responses and most of them are useful and the others are funny. So either way, it's a win. But yeah, you know, I'll probably get 16 out of 20 will be really useful solutions. Yeah, so I was just going to say about community is that if you're feeling the pressure, if you're feeling the anxiety, if you're feeling the ostracism, that it's likely that you're not part of a community. And whether it's uh, partnership leaders or product-led growth community, whatever you're in, type it in and then type the word community. And there is one out there. And there's also a lot of kind of like little dark social channels. I think you and I are part of one, that 25% club. You know, you'll get invited to even super special, tinier clubs inside of those on, you know, things like WhatsApp. And so if you're not being invited or you're not a part of those, you should make it somewhat of like a part, part, part-time job to seek them out and join and participate because you'll find yourself just supported and elevated in ways that will help you in your immediate point in life as well as over the long term. And don't try and sell in those groups. Oh, <laughs> God, no. Because you'll just get shunned. 
okay, so I see so many organizations where their CRM is just a dog's dinner. 80% plus of the data in it is total drivel. It's unhelpful and uh, often cryptic and unreadable. And this is the central system of record uh, upon which all critical investment and hiring decisions are then going to be based because that's your forecast, that's your budget. What needs to be done to ensure that there is data hygiene from vendor to partner and that there is an appropriate sharing of information? Because one of the things that I've seen time and time again, and justifiably, is that there is very little or no trust. And often the vendor salespeople are never even told who the customer is. And they certainly won't give them a name because they just won't let them anywhere near them. So we've got to get past that and have this continuity of data, uh, this clarity. How do we create those conditions so that people trust uh, and can share that information in order to serve the customer better? Well, I think that's what Crossbeam was invented for. You know, listening to Bob Moore and some of the guys over at Reveal, that Simon over at Reveal, I think that's what Crossbeam said. It's like, hey, there's these varying levels of trust between organizations. And so at the very minimum level, you know, there's this. And then as trust built between the organizations, they can reveal more. That's the name of the company, right? It's kind of of fun when the the name of the movie is in the movie. And so the name of the product's in the product. I wonder what Snakes on a Plane was about. I've never seen the movie, but there's just that one line. Just, <laughs> oh God, we have, my 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 kids love it when I'm like, we've had it with these. And I don't curse, but like we we change the word. These mother loving snakes on this mother loving plane, and like we just kind of throw that out there in the family whenever we're fresh. We're like, yeah, I could go off on a tangent with that one because it's just so much fun. <laughs> Yeah, whenever we're frustrated, it's like, we've had it with this mother-loving wait at this mother-loving restaurant. Let's get out of here, you know, Fair Sam enough. Jackson. So yeah, so no, I think I think that's what Reveal and, and Crossbeam have been designed for, is that you've got to have some level of base level uh, data maturity, uh, data, well, yeah, base level data maturity and trust. Uh, I would say, go talk to the guys at Crossbeam and Reveal. Uh, reach out to Alan Adler, who I know is doing some work with companies on helping them I would say more mid to enterprise level companies. That's so that's why I recommend him because I'm more um, SMB to mid and he's more mid to enterprise level companies, helping them uh, again, get that type massive of stuff going. endorsement for Alan. His, uh, check him out on hashtag go to ecosystem. Yeah. Actually, I've got to call Adam, uh, to call him Adam, Alan Adler later today. So funny enough, he's, uh, we try to talk once a month. Excellent. Okay. Let's look at how you get the leadership on side. Because one of the things that we wrote about in making channel sales work was making sure that you are set up to be a good partner. And it starts Mm -hmm. with the leadership, accepting that the channel is not only viable, but it's probably their best route to market for the future. Because their partners already have warm or hot relationships, which massively increases conversion rate and shorten sales cycle reduces cost and reduces churn rate, uh, just in case any of you are uh, doubting this. So how do you get leadership on side when you're pitching companies about setting up or turning around their channel if they've tried it and had their fingers burnt? How do you get them on side? Yeah. So, you know, let's talk about leadership. Like leadership isn't like just like we say the word leadership, then you have to go one or two levels or questions down. 
And like any, so what we're really talking about is change management, right? And so then what are like the basic recipes and elements to any change management process? So change management often starts with like an internal advocate in some position of power that you then can then work with to help advocate for that. And so depending on the size of the business and how and where you come in, one of the ways, again, I, I know marketing and I know product. And so therefore I will... I speak to and I resonate with product and marketing or product marketers, right? Mm -hmm. If those people are listening to me on channel or on LinkedIn or here, they like what I say, will make a connection. And uh, for me, it, it really starts with like having some sort of inbound message that I get brought into the company through. And then we start talking about just, the things you just and I just- Let me unpack that for a second. So effectively what you're doing is you're tapping into the user base who will be the beneficiary or the sufferer of whatever decision senior management buy into in order to have them percolate your message through the organization. Yeah. So like right. CMOs and I get along really well. So yeah. we'll talk about, cause I can, I, I know the pain, I know their world and I know that how this part of partnerships can help them. And so it's all about land and expand. It's a product that they're buying, you know, a program that they're trying to install. And so the same way that, you know, you sell your product to a company, a, a customer and help solve the first one or two things that they came to you for. And then you have successive things that it can then help enhance and produce and all that other stuff. It's the change management the same way. A partnership program is the same way. You find that one kind of key thing that everyone can get a, a buy-in on to test before we heavily invest. And so in my case, you know, the point I'll often start with for me, because that's just the world I know is, part, uh, is uh, marketing-led partnerships that are based off of, uh, we'll call it orphaned, abandoned, or never matured uh, integrations that turned into go-to-market strategies. And we'll get some traction with one, two, three partners, generate leads, generate sales. And then all of a sudden, like, hey, we're making money. Well, then let's look at further down the sales cycle into product. Let's further down further cycle into the sales org and the success org. And then, you know, bring those people in. And so it's really like you just don't all of a sudden monolithically say we're now partnerships and here's the change and everybody in the company is now going to be this. It's a gradual process. You know, it's a transformation. Uh, when agile marketing was like a big kind of, I guess it might still be, you know, it was like you just don't all of a sudden come on and then change everything around everything. You just start with one person, two people, because I've been a part of the agile transformation movement. It was just a one or a two person, one or two project at a time thing until like the results spoke for themselves. And then people were attracted to better. Like if you've got a better way and you demonstrate it and it, it grows and that's really it. And so if you've got something that actually means something to somebody that's going to help them, they're going to see it, they're going to gravitate towards it and they're going to want it. And so it's really, you just have to start small and organically grow. That's my approach. I, I'm not a top down like executive saying, mm -hmm. This is the way it ought to be and everybody needs to transform overnight, which does not help people work anyway. So just build something that people want and uh, be a good marketer and spread it throughout the organization and then you'll get buy-in. Okay, all good advice. It strikes me that what you're describing is a more systems thinking approach to selling and marketing, also coupled with an understanding of human psychology and the discipline to have systems and processes so that you can eliminate the drudge and the dead time. The challenge that I have with that is historically those, the people who've invested in that have fixated on efficiency 
as opposed to effectiveness. And as we start to transition into an era where partner enablement will become a thing, which I think it, it has to, because it, re- I mean, it's massively underinvested in, and uh, if it happens at all, as that happens, I think we're going to have to equip our partners to be much more versatile in order to help them do the work, and they need to be much more capable of bringing several different disciplines together or working nicely with others who can bring those disciplines together. Now, in traditional corporate environments, you don't generally cooperate well where leadership has set up a competitive landscape and you know it's a, a divide and conquer and this sort of gung-ho uh, kind of macho attitude to business. So you don't see cooperation as being the norm, but to thrive in partnerships, you have to work well with others. How is this going to affect the way people recruit? Well, I mean, you know, we all have the choice to choose where we want to work and who we want to work for and what type of environment. And we're all home buyers in some way that need to inspect the product before we move in. And so I would say caveat emptor, like buyer beware. And you have to know yourself. And so I'm flipping it on the side is how do we recruit? I kind of took this as why would you want to work for a company that is a gung-ho, like competitive non-cooperative environment. And so I think maybe, you know, maybe power is power and people are attracted to that. And there's always going to be a space in place for companies that have a culture around, you know, a divide and conquer. But I I think if I look at all the fresh faces and people that I'm seeing on LinkedIn that I'm connecting with, they don't want to work at a company like that. That's the 1980s, 90s, and early 2000s. Those people weren't hardly even born yet. And so they don't even work for companies that have that culture. And so nor nor are they going to switch and go stay at a place like that. And so, you know, when I look at Zapier and Aircall and HubSpot and some of these really great, like fantastically, like well-culturally endowed companies, they're setting the bar and and, and they're dividing and conquering the, the world of corporate uh, cultural leadership. And so... I think that if that's if that's still how leadership is thinking and acting and they're not aligning to where the actual culture is, they're going to have to shift, you know, like is well, IBM the company it used to be? No, is I'm trying to find like, you know, Hewlett Packard, right? Are those companies the companies and brands that we 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 trust and love anymore? No. You know, you work at IBM, you're like, "Huh, like like well that that's cool, but like I think of like gray boxes with really springy keyboards, not like innovative, fun like fresh, dynamic places to work. And so I think it's it's going to be the individual because people now have choices and power to work where they want to work. And if they don't like it, they'll go find a company that, that does. And even in a, in a recession, I still think the, the, that's the, the, the cultural Pandora's box is open and people want to work with and be in environments that feel good and work for them in a cooperative, envi- in a cooperative way. I agree with you. And what's interesting is the the, uh, friction because the people who grew up in the 80s and 90s are now the money behind many of these organizations. They're the very, very senior leadership or they're on the boards of uh, uh, non-execs or their VCs or private equity. And a lot of that culture has carried over. We're seeing this in the great resignation because... Like you said, people typically now are moving jobs because they want to grow into the person they're going to become, certainly within white-collar work. And the net result of that is that it's very difficult to keep talent. But 
again, what I'm ve- I'd be very interested if you've done any, or got any research on this is the length of time that salespeople stay within partner sales teams versus vendor and funded sales teams. Yeah. The reason being, the research suggests that the seller hits their stride, full stride, somewhere in the third year, about month, I think, 2.4. Um, so, Justin, uh, thanks for that. That's been insightful. Tell me something. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Justin, age 23. What one bit of advice would you have given him that you know he'd have probably have ignored but would have been useful? Do it anyways. <laughs> You know, what I'm doing now, finally, with partner playbooks is something that I started working on, you know, in some way back in 2005, 06. And so it would be like, yeah, this is going to be big. You're onto the right thing. Don't give up. Find a way to, to fund the, 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 the project because building an audience of like-minded people who follow and listen and believe and you can help and support building community is is the future of of business. And it is a perpetual, ever-growing, and it's going to be the biggest thing you've ever seen. And uh, don't stop, keep going, find a way to make this work because it's going to pay off in two or three years. Absolutely, and that's great advice. Excellent. And what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to in terms of content around their community ecosystem and partnerships? Yeah, I mean, the choices are pretty apparent right now. Um, You know, if you're listening to this and you're in the world of partnerships, there's, you know, the Partner Up podcast with Jared Fuller of Partner Hacker. I was recently on Adam Machowski's uh, Partnered podcast, which was recently acquired by Crossbeam. I think that's another good one. I'm starting to host small, not podcasts, but little community kind of based meetups at partnerplaybooks.com. And uh, there's a book I read recently that was amazing, besides your book, was uh, Partner Principle. I forgot the guy's name, but I think Partnership Principle, Partner Principle, it lays out, it is it is a playbook in and of itself over and over again. And so go look that up. I forgot his name, Matt Day or Matt Ray or Matt something. I'm sitting on my it, but I will look it up. Yeah, that, that's a really, really good book. And so, and, and then uh, join Partnership Leaders for the Community. Be on LinkedIn for like 20, 30 minutes a day, reading, writing, uh, reviewing, commenting, and uh, you'll you'll start to absorb, take it in, be part of the community and conversation. And uh, when, when you have an opinion that's worth sharing or you think it's worth sharing, put it out there and uh, you'll, you'll see uh, magic things happen when you do that process over and over again. Excellent. Justin, how can people get hold of you? Find me on LinkedIn, Justin Zim, or go to partnerplaybooks.com. Fantastic. Justin Zimmerman, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you know someone who'd benefit from this, then please tag them. And if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you're looking for a coach who's going to give you a very, very, very tough time and not let you off the hook, then I'm taking on two more coaching clients this quarter. Uh, If you want to get a hold of me, DM me or LinkedIn uh, or uh, email. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.